Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, on this night, as we remember, you were arrested while you were praying for us, abandoned by your closest friends. On this Friday, Jesus, you were unfairly accused and viciously mocked by the lives of those whose very breath you had given. On this Friday, Jesus, your chosen leader of the disciples denied you, that he knew you three times. On this Friday, Jesus, in your silence and refusal to defend yourself, you became a sacrificial lamb. On this Friday, Jesus, you were beaten and flogged with a leather strip that held bits of metal and shards of glass and chips of bone that tore at your flesh. On this Friday, Jesus, a thorny crown was pressed into your scalp that ridiculed your kingship. And then, Lord Jesus, on this Friday, you were nailed to a common cross, public spectacle of shame, an object of the crowd's fascination, and the recipient of the terrible wrath of God. And there on that cross, Jesus, on this Friday, you said, Father, forgive them. And then, Lord Jesus, you also said, Father, why have you forsaken me? On this Friday, Jesus, you refused the summon of angels for help but submitted yourself to the just penalty for the sins of your people. And you hung on that cross and breathed your last, submitting yourself to the curse of death itself. It's on that Friday, Jesus, that you did this great and glorious work for us, your people, being put in the place of sinners that you might save as many as who would put their faith and trust in you. On that terrible Friday, Lord, you made this Friday good. You healed us. You put the world of sin to death. And you began a new world of grace so that we might rejoice in Good Friday, Jesus. We pray that you would help us Testify to that grace that brings to us hope and faith and love. And we pray that we would be a testimony to this world that in you the darkness has been broken and the light has dawned. We thank you, Jesus. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Good evening. As I listened to those, um, those passages being read from John, I thought there are so many beautiful things that John is asking us to think about and to see. Today we're going to look at Barabbas. And as we read chapters 18 and 19 and look at this criminal Barabbas, one of the first questions that we ask is, 
why do the crowds call for his release? I mean, Jesus is constantly identified as the innocent man. Barabbas in John is called a robber. In other gospels, he's called a notorious criminal, even someone who has committed murder in an insurrection. By all accounts, Barabbas was certainly the guilty one, and Jesus was the innocent one. When pressed, Jesus constantly reiterated that he was no threat to Rome. My kingdom is not of this world, and if it were, my servants would be fighting. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. But therein lies a clue, doesn't it? Those crowds who wanted to kill Jesus and release Barabbas were flying high a week before during the triumphal entry. They were excited. Here was this Messiah coming to them, and, they, and this Messiah was going to kick the teeth in of those Roman overlords. Finally, a Jewish kingdom. Finally, all of our hopes and expectations would be met. And now, Jesus seems weak and useless. At least Barabbas tried to get rid of the Romans. He might have failed, but at least he started an insurrection. These crowds want a Messiah who will rebel, not a weak Messiah who won't help them at all. But these crowds are not unique in their response to Jesus, are they? Often the first thing that we want from God is for him to establish our kingdom. God, would you just baptize my priorities? But this is always opposed to the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. So we too cry out with those crowds, crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus, so excuse me, Pilate has Jesus flogged, crowned with thorns, clothed with a kingly robe of purple, and the picture is complete. Behold the man, Pilate exclaims to the crowd. He is weak and shrunken. Mock him, ridicule him. This is no rebel king. He can't bring your kingdom. He can't overthrow Caesar. He wouldn't even try. When Pilate says, behold the man, he is saying, look at this pitiful creature, this deluded man. But this isn't just Pilate speaking to us. John likes to record the words of Jesus' enemies speaking the truth about Jesus. In John chapter 11, and again in John 18, Caiaphas, the high priest, no friend of Jesus has said, it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation perish. You see, God has chosen those words, behold the man, to say something profound to us. God wants us to see this picture of Jesus, and think this is what humanity looks like. In Genesis 1, on the sixth day of creation, that Friday, God made man, and he crowned him with glory and honor. And now, on the sixth day of the Passion Week, Good Friday, we see Jesus, and we behold how far humanity has fallen from glory to ruin. Now Jesus, the author of humanity, has taken upon himself the mantle of humanity and is condemned with humanity. It isn't that Jesus is a pitiful sight as much as that we are. We are the rebels who try to overthrow God's kingdom, and God is calling us to behold our sin and rebellion. 
Humanity expresses this rebellion in many ways. The poem Invictus by William Ernest Henry is an anthem to this rebellion. As I read it, I want you to listen to the imagery of Jesus on Good Friday, but it's recast as a hymn to the self. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. His poet knows that he is in the dark as a human. He knows that circumstances have bloodied him and beaten him. He's under the constant threat of death, and he knows that he is a rap sheet of his crimes, the scroll of all of the things he's done wrong, and yet he still shakes his fist in defiance. I will never give up my crumbling kingdom. I will never yield my selfish rebellion. I am in control. I am the captain of my soul. Within the church, we have more subtle forms of this rebellion. We look like we're about God's kingdom and glory, but really we're about our own priorities. In counseling students, I see these patterns and these themes all the time. A student has decided that her priorities are the most important, and so she pursues her schooling to the utmost of her ability, neglecting to rest with God's people, worship, and prayer. And whether she achieves all of what she longs for or not, that anxiety creeps in. And then those sins, that sin pattern that she's all too familiar with, rears its ugly head again. She may feel bad. She may feel guilty. She may even repent of her sins. But so often, the aspirational direction of her heart is still oriented to her own priorities. And so that pattern of rebellion and anxiety and sin continues and deepens. The next time your sin pattern rears its ugly head, I want you to interact with it on a kingdom level. What aspect of my kingdom and my priorities am I committed to that's above God and gives rise to this pattern? How am I in rebellion? These false kingdoms that we build always lead to ruin. That crown on Jesus' head, that's you taking control of your life and it's bloodying you. The robes on his body, that's you taking glory and honor for yourself instead of giving it to God. The cries from the crowd of mockery and the lashes on on Jesus' back are your shame and your guilt. When we hear, behold the man on Good Friday, God is calling us to look at our ruin. This is where rebellious humanity has landed, and you won't understand Jesus until you see yourself in rebellion and deserving of being flogged and crowned and bloodied and robed with soil because you're trying to build that rebellious kingdom yourself. But by God's grace, there is something good about Friday. And it's again found in that statement, behold the man. We're called to behold Jesus suffering for our rebellion We're not called to suffer for it ourselves. We are spectators in this drama, 
as the author of humanity, has taken upon himself the mantle of humanity to redeem humanity. And this passage takes us back to that person that we started with on Good Friday, who is a front row seat, Barabbas. Why did the crowds release Barabbas? That's an interesting question, why they called for his release. The most important question, though, is why did God release Barabbas? Because God loved Barabbas so much that he would take his place in the person of Jesus. If anyone should know that Jesus took his place, it's Barabbas. It was Barabbas that was amazingly released while Jesus was condemned. It's Barabbas that should have gone to the crucifixion while Jesus did. In Aramaic, Barabbas means son of a father. Bar, son of, Abba, you've heard, father. And now we have front row seats next to Barabbas, a son of a father. And in beholding Jesus, we don't just see our sin and shame. We also see the glory of our Redeemer, who, though he was innocent, stood in our place so that sons and daughters of a father could become sons and daughters of the Father. Why did Jesus release Barabbas? Why did God release Barabbas? Because on Good Friday, the true human came because he loved ruins, ruined humans so much that he would redeem us. Tim Keller tells a story of a woman who came to his church. She would always cut out at the end of the sermon, and Dr. Keller had trouble catching her. After a few Sundays, he finally caught up with her. They exchanged pleasantries, and he asked, why are you, why are you coming to Redeemer? Who brought you here? What, what's going on? She was young in her career. She had started working in a broadcasting company, she said, and while she, was, she didn't know if she believed everything that Dr. Keller spoke about, she felt compelled to keep coming back. A couple of months ago, you see, she had made a catastrophic error in her company, one which she thought would have gotten her fired and which she almost certainly knew would have stopped her career path in its tracks. But instead, her boss went to his boss and defended her. He said, you know what? It's my fault. I didn't train her like I should have. Blame me. So amazed was this woman at what her boss did that she went to him and she said, why, why did you do that? I'm used to people taking credit for my successes. I've never had someone take credit for my failures. And he said, oh, no, it, it, don't worry about it. It was nothing. And she said, no, it, it wasn't nothing. What, what's going on here? He said, oh, it was just the right thing to do. No, it wasn't the right thing to do. The right thing to do would let me get fired. He said, okay. I want to warn you, you pushed me to this. <laughs> I'm a Christian. My core identity and hope is found in the fact that Jesus took credit for my failure. The reason we love that story is because it's the story of Good Friday. It can be painful to look at what our sin and shame deserves, but it is also glorious to behold the man who took our place. It is in beholding the man that we are redeemed. So the next time your sin pattern rears its ugly head again, don't try to do better first. Don't try to clean it up. Don't try to fix it. Just stop and behold. Behold the man who out of love took the place of you for all of your sin and all of your rebellion so that he could give you freedom in his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for sending your son who willingly and lovingly laid down his life for us. Lord, you know 
that we were just sons and daughters of a father, but you have made us sons and daughters of you, the Father in heaven. We thank you for that truth. We thank you for this Good Friday and the hope that it brings us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.